Well, thank you to the worship team. What a great morning of worship. What a great reminder that, in fact, Christ is everything. If you know him, he is everything. Now, many of you have heard uh, the story, I've told it probably too many times, of being at a men's breakfast years ago when the pastor who was leading it, who wanted to sound very relevant, very friendly to the men at our table, sort of boldly announced, I don't need doctrine and I don't need theology, I just need Jesus. And that can sound kind of good to people sometimes, but that is a nonsensical statement, completely nonsensical. Now, it is true that the term theology sounds academic, and it is, right? Theology is the study of God. Theos is the Greek word for God, and theology is the study of God. Uh, Now, Thomas Aquinas, writing in the 1200s, noted that theology comes from God, it teaches about God, and it leads us to God. Now, it comes from God first in a very general sense, not a saving sense, This is uh, through creation, through God's common grace. This is looking up at the stars, the moon, the sun that rises, the blue skies that we see. And we think to the psalmist in 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above. This is his uh, through creation, through God's exists. common. We know this in Romans 1, 19 and 20, that there are no true atheists because God has shown both his divinity, his existence, his power, through everything that has been made to everyone around, though many will suppress the knowledge of God. But then it is through special revelation, special revelation that we can know God, truly know him in a saving way. It is through the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative, and clear word of God spoken in holy scriptures that we are taught about God, that we can know God and which lead us to God. And it is through the study of the Bible and the study of who God is, of course, that we begin to see that God is triune. God is Trinity. And there's no doubt that it is virtually impossible uh, for us to wrap our finite minds around the concept of the Trinity, right? There is nothing like God in all of his creation. So we can't look at something and say, the Trinity is like this, It is three persons in one nature. That alone is is enough to blow our minds, right? He has one will, but in God's economy, three persons acting in unison, playing each a distinct role and carrying out that will. That these are three persons who are are co-equal, who are co-eternal, who existed for all time, but in one Godhead who is perfect, who needs nothing. When we say he's perfect, we mean he needs nothing. And these three who are one, this trinity, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this morning, we're going to turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to close that out. And as we do, we're going to see John's first mention of the Holy Spirit. Now, we so often speak of God the Father. We pray to the Father. We speak of God the Son and the work that was done to save us. But we often neglect to focus on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're doing this in one sermon, and we will barely scratch the surface of this topic this morning. But let me read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who said much about the person and work of the Holy Spirit during his ministry in the 1800s. He said, Every growth of your spiritual life, from the first tender shoot until now, 
has been the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way to more life is the Holy Spirit. You will not even know that you want more unless he works in you to desire it. The Spirit of God must come and make the letter of God's word alive. Transfer it to your heart. Set it on fire and make it burn within you, or else its divine force and majesty will be hid from your eyes. Even prayer is the creation of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do without prayer, and we cannot pray without the Holy Spirit. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we come to you because of what you have done for us. We come to you by the work of your Son, and we come to you by and through the power of the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes to these mighty truths, that you will give us a hunger and a thirst for learning about you and growing in you, ever building our faith and confidence and and awe at your majesty. Father, let us never lose sight of your glory, who you are, and that we are created in your image, but strive and work so hard to understand. We pray that you will be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, as I said, we're going to turn back to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to focus on verse 24. And as we do, we remember that John began this letter, this this chapter of the letter, uh, with this wonderful reminder. He begins this chapter reminding us that anyone who has turned from sin, who has repented from sin, who has placed their full faith in the person and work in Jesus Christ, God the Son, is a child of God, and is a child of God now, is not waiting for a future event. That should give us great assurance. It should provide us comfort. That is one of the reasons that John is is drawing us to this important truth. It should give us comfort in times of persecution or times of suffering. And we've talked many times in the West, here in America, we don't experience persecution and suffering like they do elsewhere, not physically. We're not being thrown in jail for our beliefs, tortured or killed. But we do suffer. We bear our part for Christ. We give up other opportunities. We, we, we honor God when we realize as parents that our sole responsibility is to raise our children to know God and to know that he is first and foremost over all things in life, that there is no sacrifice that we make in that area. Now, knowing that you are a child of God is also an encouragement to obey God, all of God's commands. And we see this in, the, in verses 2 and 3, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, that we know that, we, that when Christ returns, we shall be like him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as Jesus is pure. And that was John's launching point, right? That was the launching point into the last few weeks where we have focused on the test of obedience and the test of love, both evidences of our faith. Uh, We are told to obey God's commandment, and then verse 23, where we closed last week, summarized God's commandment, the commandment that we joyfully obey, right? Because our lives are oriented around doing everything to please God. Uh, The commandment was this, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And as we explored that, we saw in essence that this captures every word of Scripture, And that the call to love is a call to action. It's a call to make a decision, to act and make a choice, to love in a biblical, sacrificial way, even those who we normally would say are undeserving of our love or our favor. 
And that brings us all to this closing verse, this verse 24. Let's read it now. 1 John 3, 24. It says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so it is the work of the Holy Spirit to affect that union between Christ and us. It is by the Spirit that we know. But we start where John has repeatedly started. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Now, we have spoken before. This is not the first time that this phrase appears in the letter of 1 John. But we've spoken about the way that John communicates what it means, what it looks like to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Those who are truly forgiven of their sins, those who are saved by the work of Jesus for all eternity are those who abide in him, in the words of John. Those who stay in him, those who remain in Christ. And this concept that John uses is repeated upwards of ten times in this short letter. He is writing to first century Christians, we remember. That is the occasion for the letter. This is a group of Christians who knew what it meant to face true physical, true economic persecution. They were excluded from broader parts of society, especially upper levels of society, for their beliefs in Christ. They knew what it meant to be misunderstood by those around them for their beliefs. They knew what it meant to be hated and oppressed by the governing authorities. And their suffering, and why John is writing, is only increased by the false teachers that arose within their ranks and then left. And those false teachers continued to gain popularity. They continued to cause confusion. And they heaped condemnation upon those who remained faithful to the word of God because they taught new things that appealed to the common man, that tickled the ears of their hearers. And they had gone off to lead apostate groups. Apostate groups of a religion that they called Christian, but did not save. It is a world not too dissimilar to the world that we live in today. And so verse 24 begins, yet again, by noting that the evidence of your salvation turns on obedience to God's commandments. That great summary of, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength? And do you love others as Christ loved us intentionally, sacrificially, not based on merit? 1 John 2.6 says that whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you say that you're saved, if you say that you are in Christ, then you should be living the way that he lived. We know that whoever believes in the gospel, who trusts and lives by every word of God, evidences salvation, right? 1 John 2, 24 says, let what you heard from the beginning, let the, the gospel, the truth of scripture, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then, of course, John shows us what it looks like to be in the opposite camp. We know that a life lived in sin, a pattern of sin, a habit of sin. Those who will twist scripture to validate the very things that God says that he hates and are against his nature. They are not saved, John says, no matter what they profess with their mouth. They can say the right words, but their lives give a different picture. And 1 John 3, 6 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those are three of the ten references 
to abiding in Christ. But ultimately what we need to see, and the reason that John keeps using this term, is that abiding in Christ is drawing from the parable of the vineyard that Jesus spoke in John 15. In John 15, 1-11, Jesus said this. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I want to pause there and just remind you as you read these passages to stop and think. We, we live in a culture that seems to think it, it's a God owes me if I do something, right? So if I obey, God will bless me in this life in the way that the world measures. But what does Jesus actually tell us about the fruitfulness of our lives for the kingdom? He says God will continue to prune us. God will continue to work in our lives to hive off the unfaithfulness, to clip away that sin that we so desperately try to hold on to in a part of our life that we haven't fully surrendered to God. It doesn't promise immediate blessing. It promises eternal blessing and fruitfulness all for the glory of God. But there is a pruning that continues throughout our life. He continues, I'm jumping to verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned." I again say, Jesus here is using the same language. If you are in him, you are led in a life of fruitfulness. If you are not in him, you are gathered up and burned. You will spend an eternity in hell. And jumping to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See the way he starts that, if you keep my commandments. Again, we see, uh, both in the words of Jesus and in the letter of John, that our obedience, which means obeying his word, is the visible expression of our spiritual life in Christ. Right? Our obedience, our life, is the visible expression of our spiritual life in Christ. All of our obedience flows from the heart. Right? It flows from a heart devoted to God, to pleasing him. And when we think about disobedience and rebellion, that stems from a heart that is devoted to something or someone else, or even ourselves, right? Looking to please ourselves. And that problem arises in spades when our, our joy does not come in and through Christ. That's not the center of our joy, but something else is. This constant quest for joy that people are on. Now, obedience is the sign, but we don't all obey. None of us do. None of us do perfectly. We struggle with disobedience. We struggle with sin. It is a lifelong problem. So what is the difference for a Christian? Well, a Christian struggles with sin but knows that we are no longer slaves to sin. Galatians 5.1 tells us that. But we do continue to battle it. We battle it, though, with knowledge That if we truly abide in Christ, then Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit is who he's talking about. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We still struggle, but we struggle as we try to please God. And it is evident in our struggles that our spiritual life is always under attack. This always gets coupled in these three terms, right? By the world, the devil, and the flesh. We are always under attack from the world. The world hates Christ. John 15, 18, as well as a host of other passages, tell us that. We're under attack from the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And from our own flesh. This is the thing we so often want to discount as we look to blame someone or something else for our own sinful desires. James 1, 14 and 16 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, he says. See, we can deceive ourselves so easily. It's not my fault. God made me this way. You hear all kinds of excuses. But in fact, it is our desires that we must fight again, and we must do that by the work of the Spirit. Now, what are the works of the flesh? We'll touch on this quickly. I'm just going to read one. There's many lists of what these are, but Galatians 5, 19 through 21, tells us what the works of the flesh are. I'm going to read this list. I'm going to encourage you as you read this list with me in your heads that you actually don't think about the sins of other people that you can point to, but yourself. Because this is a pretty comprehensive list, and I dare say that everyone is affected by at least one of these. It applies to all of us. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, Dissensions, divisions, I I would say, think about the church, right? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All of these things affect us. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This isn't a comprehensive list. If you think you have this list nailed, you're like, I'm good. I can check every one of those off. I have never been jealous in my life. I've gotten rid of envy. I've not caused any dissension. I am, I am nothing but a peacemaker. Everybody wants to seek me out. If you, if you have mailed this list, I would just caution you that there are other lists in the Bible. They're not meant to be comprehensive. I'd also warn you, many Christians, many Christians, Christian leaders, pastors, teachers, have fallen into grave an embarrassing and terrible sin when they get so overconfident thinking that on their own they can defeat these sins. We're warned against that, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, meaning let anyone who thinks that he can do this on his own, that, that he or she can beat sin on their own, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You can't do it on your own. It's not possible to do it on your own. So if you can't do it on your own, how then do you defeat temptations and then avoid jumping headlong into sin and rebellion against God? How do you do that? Well, Paul continues in Galatians 5.16. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a powerful work of the Holy Spirit within us. Convicting us of sin, guiding us, giving us a conscience, informing our conscience of guilt. It is by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that we even have a desire to worship or please 
or obey God, right? Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who works in you. It's not us. It is God who works in you both to will, right, to want, and to work for his good pleasure. It is not of us, it is of God. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, jumping into the Holy Spirit, so I want to close out this first clause about abiding in Christ. If abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us, if our salvation is reflected in our obedience, if that is evidence of salvation, and yet we do not reach perfection, but we still struggle with sin, how can you ever know that you are truly in Christ? How can you ever know that you are saved? You know that you struggle with certain sins. And he says obedience is the test. Well, let's go back to our verse. He tells us how we can know. He says, and by this we know. By this we know that he abides in us. So by this we know we're saved. By the Spirit whom he has given us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. You see in that statement an objective, historical truth. It is not subjective. It is something that we need to remind ourselves. The Holy Spirit has been given already to all who believe in Christ. Now, you sometimes hear that uh, Christianity is nothing more than blind faith. We're, uh, we're saved by faith. We tell everybody that. We're saved by grace, God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And they look at us and say, that is blind faith. You follow a God that you cannot see with your own eyes. But it's not blind faith. It's not blind faith at all, and Christianity is not a philosophy about life or religion or God. The amazing thing about the position of every true believer in Jesus Christ, those who are in fellowship with God as his children, who give practical evidence of being children by their thoughts, their words, their deeds. The amazing thing about this faith is that it is based entirely on real history, on events, on happenings that we go back to, on what has been done in human history, not mythical philosophies. Our salvation is not blind faith. We're saved because of one thing, and you should always remember this. We are saved by one thing. We are saved for all eternity because of what God did in history, right? in time and space, in a measurable, visible way. We are saved because of what God did in history. We don't believe in empty promises or speculations or ideas. We believe in real historical events and the truths that are evidenced in those events. How do we know this? Well, we have eyewitnesses who write it down for us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same way that people learn about history in virtually every other area. We have eyewitnesses. In the words of Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, 2 Peter 1.16. And what does Peter point out as he continues there is that we today have something so much better than even those who were eyewitnesses. He says in verse 19 through 21, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. This is the Bible. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered? Or have you ever had somebody challenge the veracity, the truthfulness, the reliability of the Bible? By bringing up something like, how could the apostles have remembered the words of Jesus? 
How could they have written down what he did? We look at the Gospels and they didn't understand his teaching. They couldn't interpret his miracles most of the time. Uh, They still did things like get scared in a storm when Jesus was with them. How could these men remember and write this stuff down after all of these tremendous events happen? We know in our own minds we can't accurately write down, well, I shouldn't speak for you. You guys all might be way sharper. I can't write down what happened a month ago and know for sure that I am being accurate in all ways. How did they do this? John 14, 26 answers the question. Jesus said to the apostles, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see in this one of the powerful works of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It was the role of God the Holy Spirit to speak out the very words that God wanted us to have through the hands of men. But let's return to history for a few minutes to understand how John can actually write to us that we know that God has given and we have received the Holy Spirit. And in order to do that, you have to go back to the very real historical event that changed the course of human history forever. It established the Christian church, of which we are just a continuation today. This all happened 50 days after the Passover celebration. 50 days after the Passover celebration, Jews from all over gathered in Jerusalem, some 2 million plus, they think. From all over the place, they gathered because they were going to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. Christians today look back on that and call it Pentecost, right? Penta being Greek for 50. It's Pentecost. And what happened on that first Pentecost after Christ had been crucified? He was buried. He rose bodily from the grave. He appeared to over 500 people, and then he ascended into heaven, leaving this group of men and women together, 120 of them, Acts tells us, in an upper room, praying, not knowing what would happen in the future. Is this all over? And then something tremendous happens, and the book of Acts, a book of history, records this real historical event for us in Acts 2, 1 through 7. And verse 11 is what I'm going to read. For time, we can't go into all of this. So this is a survey. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, the 120 followers of Christ. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all, underline that word, all, Filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see right here, it is a moment of history, a point in time recorded for us and witnessed by many. There's nobody who's written from that time that's refuting any of this. 
These are all people who are blown away. They can't believe what they're seeing. They can't believe what they're hearing. They are drawn by this sound that is described as a mighty rush of wind. They're drawn together and they witness the final act of God's redemptive plan. Right there. The final act of his redemptive plan occurred. Men and women stood and they were in awe because they looked upon these Galileans who did not know their language. And these people were proclaiming and worshiping and praising God and speaking of his mighty works. And they couldn't understand it. They couldn't understand it. And not to get sidetracked here, but I just have to mention because of our current day and age, there is nothing in this passage, not one iota of language or evidence that gives any credence to the the babbling or the nonsensical words and speech you hear people talk about and call speaking of tongues. Not from this passage. Uh, The word translated tongues is the word for languages, plain and simple. That's it. We can't change it today because it results in all kinds of church disputes. But it's just languages. Tongues is just the old English way of saying it. Go open up a King James Bible someday. Open up to the cover page. I double-checked this to make sure I would get it right. And it says right on the cover page, translated out of the original tongues. Were they talking about incoherent speech? No, they were talking about Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Right? Tongues is languages. That's it, plain and simple. All right, enough with the sidetrack. Back to our history. Salvation is the work of God. Our faith is in these true historical events and happenings. So what happened at Pentecost? Did that come out of nowhere? Of course not. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was always part of God's redemptive plan to save a people called unto faith in Jesus Christ. And it begins in the Old Testament. Now you're thinking to yourself, five hours later, we're going to get through the Old Testament and start the new. And if you'll let me, I will, but I'll try to keep this in the normal time. So we literally are going to gloss over things here. It starts in the Old Testament. You had the fall of Adam. You had humanity plagued with original sin outside the kingdom of God, and God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman, the offspring, would come someday and defeat sin and Satan. And then everything recorded for us in the Old Testament then points to how that plan of redemption unfolded. Everything starting with God's judgment, his righteous judgment poured out on the entire earth with the flood and the saving of Noah and a new covenant with Noah. And then you jump to his covenant with Abraham and the creation of the Israelites, a people to be set aside, to be viewed as holy, to show what it would look like uh, to have a nation devoted to God. And they failed miserably. He calls Moses, a precursor, a foreshadowing of Christ, Moses to lead the people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And it goes on and on from there until you have 400 years of silence. No more speech from God. No more prophecy. No more activity in human history, the silent period, until once again God intrudes into human history and we see him act mightily and you see it with the conception of Jesus, the eternal son of God taking on a human nature conceived of a virgin. That is so common to us that we say it and just move on, but I challenge you someday to ponder the majesty of God. He is conceived of a virgin. By the work of who? By the work of who? By the work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.20. God acts. We didn't talk about creation with the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the deep. 
But the three persons of the Trinity are always acting in unison. We won't summarize the rest of the New Testament. Save that for another day. Let's jump to the cross. Because that is another point in history. Maybe the most important point of history for us. Where God did something. Something real. Something at a point in time. Something that we know happened. It's a historical event. It's undisputed. We know it from the truth of scripture. And that's all we need. But we actually know it from what has been written by secular historians. Or Jewish historians. Right? Like Josephus or Eusebius. And we see on that cross what we turn to, to look for our salvation. Because we see on that cross the sacrifice of the perfect lamb. You see in that cross the fulfillment of the birth announcement that the angel made to Joseph. Right? Matthew 1.21. The angel told Joseph that Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will, not he might. He will save his people from their sins. And he did. And he did. And it was the once for all sacrifice on that cross where he did that. The priesthood in one act was demolished. The curtain was torn in two, opening up the Holy of Holies. We access now the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It was finished. Hebrews 10.12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. His work was finished. Ah, but that leaves us with a question. How do you know that that sacrifice was enough? How do you know that that sacrifice was enough? How do you know that the Father has accepted the work of the Son on behalf of all who place their faith in Him for all eternity until He returns someday? Well, you can start with the this is that sermon. The this is that sermon. In Acts 2, 17 and following, Peter stands up with the other 11 apostles behind him and he delivers a powerful sermon to explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We call it the this is that sermon. That is kind of the term for it because Peter stands up and he explains this. Right? For those people, the this is what you saw and what you heard. It was the rushing wind that drew you here to listen to me preach. It was the people speaking the mighty acts of God in your language when you knew that they didn't know your language. That was the this. And this is that. This is that which God foretold long ago by the prophets. This is that which God had foretold as the sign. That he had sent the Messiah and that his work was complete and the redemption in him had come to fruition. It is that which shows that the Messiah, the Christ, was the one that they had crucified, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Peter began that sermon in verse 16, Acts 2, 16. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. By the way, older translations work better for the this is that sermon because it would read, but this is that which was uttered through the prophet Joel, citing Joel 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he begins to explain. But this is the very promise that Jesus made as well. In John 14, 15 to 17, Jesus promised this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is that starting to feel like a familiar theme? It should. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. He's been with you all along, but he will be in you. The outpouring of the Spirit. You see, the ministry of Jesus, his teaching, all the miracles he did, his death on the cross, and then his resurrection from the grave, truly proved that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God. But in the this is that sermon, Peter then takes that and applies it to what they have seen in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the final act of God's redemptive plan. Because it is the sending of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out on all who believe in Jesus, that is the fulfillment of the promise that only the Son of God could deliver upon. Nobody else can make God do anything. But the Trinity operates in unison. Jesus said in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In John 16, 14, Jesus continues, he says, The Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So so how do you know that the the sacrifice on that cross was sufficient and accepted by the Father? Because of the fulfillment of the promise to send the Holy Spirit into those who trust Christ alone for their salvation. He is sent to point to and glorify the person and the completed work of Jesus Christ on that cross. And he does. And he does that in a way that builds our confidence, that allows us to come to him uh, to believe completely. In his perfectly obedient life, fulfilling the law of God on our behalf, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And from these two verses, the ones I just read, you begin to see the mission of the Holy Spirit. The mission of the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from, he is given by the Father and the Son. And his mission is to point to and glorify Jesus, the Christ. And to speak the words that Christ would speak. Now, we're going to highlight really quickly, just in the time we have left, some of the additional work of the Holy Spirit. And again, we will only scratch the surface here, but I want to kill one other falsehood that you hear from time to time. And that falsehood, that false teaching is that there are those who are believers in Christ, those who are saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who are waiting to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That it hasn't happened yet. Do you understand how false that is? That would imply, that would teach, that there are in fact two classes of Christians. There are the saved Christians, and then there are the saved Christians who are also filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a fallacy. You will find that nowhere in Scripture. In fact, what you will find in Scripture time and time again, that Christ unites all believers. All believers. They are all equals, whether slave, whether free, Jew or Gentile, right? We see that in Galatians. There are not two classes of Christians. Brothers and sisters, if you are saved, if you have placed your faith and your belief in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot be saved unless you have the Holy Spirit. There's no second event. There are additional giftings at times. The Holy Spirit can work powerfully through individuals, and he certainly did in the Bible. We see that. 
But you're not waiting for anything. If you're saved, you've been filled. It's that simple, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Do you see how straightforward that is? You either have the Spirit and you belong to Christ, you you cannot belong to Christ in any other way. It is that clear. It is that simple. He does this other powerful work for us. He calls us into unison. He calls us into the family, into the body of Christ. Calling us next to brothers and sisters where iron sharpens iron and we guide and we experience the ups and downs of life. We grieve with our brothers and we celebrate with our sisters. We, we do all of these things because of the work of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful work of God. Well, what is the sign? What does John tell us the sign is of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Contrary to what you might hear, there is no spectacular sign to show that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Look again at what is mentioned by John in this verse. And I would encourage you to look again at the teachings of Jesus. Here's the sign. Obedience. Obedience to all that God commanded and Christ-like, sacrificial love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is not natural. You don't do those things on your own. The natural man, the natural woman doesn't choose to lay down everything, to obey Christ, to honor God, to please Him in every way. That is the work of the Spirit. And I will tell you, we should thank God that they don't list out Here's the two things that uh, you must show and then you know you're filled with the Spirit because what would we do? We would pursue an absurd-looking life of trying to make that up and show everybody that we were filled with the Spirit. It's human nature. It's the same reason why we don't have some of the artifacts that we might like to see because we'd make idols out of them. We'd all be traveling to the tomb of Moses and lighting candles or something. Right? I mean, that's just the way we are. God made us. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. If he told us if, you know, if you could hop on one foot for long enough, guess what everybody would be doing? They'd be trying to hop on one foot long enough to prove they were filled with the Spirit. Right? Obedience. Love. That's how you know. The fact that you're here this morning. Uh, let's look quickly. What's the work of the Spirit? The first work of the Spirit is regeneration. John, uh, Jesus talks about this in John 3. And we're going to move quick. Jesus said in verse 3 to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, verse 5, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Amazing statements. You need the work of the Spirit. But it's mysterious to us. It's hard to figure out, right? Jesus makes that clear. If you jump down to verse 8 in John 3, uh, he references the wind, something we can feel, but we cannot see. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He is God. We don't control him. He controls us. Not in a way that we might like sometimes, not as robots, but he does his work in us. It might be mysterious. 
It might challenge us to think this way. We, do, we like to believe we're always in control, so it might challenge us a bit to think about God working in our hearts in this way to draw us to Christ. It, the, the whole concept of regeneration by the Holy Spirit is tough for people. We can't always understand all things we would like to, but we can't deny it either. Titus 3.5 says this, God saved us, right? It starts that way. God saved us. Who saved you? Not you. God. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, so not because we're good people, not because we're better than our neighbor who is off someplace else this morning having fun or doing whatever people do on Sunday mornings. No, not, not because we do better things, not because we're smarter. That is certainly not the case. No, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see it in your life. What else? What else does he do? Next one might be kind of hard for the apostles to hear. There's a reason for that. Jesus is talking to them. He's, he's foreshadowing his crucifixion. He's foreshadowing that he will rise again, something that they don't fully comprehend. But it's going to be hard for them because he says it's going to be to their benefit that he goes to the cross, that he's crucified, that he rises again. You can kind of get there if you've been with him three years. You're, you're counting on Jesus to be the Messiah. He's going to usher in the new kingdom. And you're still believing that he's going to raise Israel to a point of prominence and, and crush the Gentiles. That's what you want to believe. But he's telling you it's actually going to be good for you because I'm not going to stay. You won't see me anymore. But that's going to be good for you that I ascend into heaven and leave you on your own because the plan of redemption is going to be completed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says this in John 16, 7 through 11. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you see that? The plan of redemption had to be completed. Verse 8, and when he comes, now you're starting to see the work of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. You must know you need a Savior before you reach out to Jesus. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. There's no longer a walking Jesus right by our side that we can look at and see what it looks like to, to follow God's law perfectly. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So here, right here again, you see the work of the Holy Spirit in, in convicting men and women of their sins. It, 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 for the saved, we talk about sanctification because he continues this work in our hearts, right? Over time, conforming us to the image of Christ in Romans 8, 29, right? That's the work of the Spirit, continuing to convict us of our sin, to, to prune us, to shave off those rough edges. And we work with him in doing that. Now, another work of his is assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. How do you know? How do you know that you belong to Christ? How do you know that you're a child of God? Well, Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It is his work in our hearts that give us that confidence, that inward knowledge that we know 
We, we talked about how he brings people into the body of Christ, to creating a new family, stronger than blood, brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? That is a work of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And we saw that. And what does he do? He gifts people. He gives a variety of gifts to people. The Bible says all have a gift. And those gifts are to be used for what? To build yourself up so that you can feel more spiritual, so you can walk on a different plane, be closer to God, uh, maybe look more spiritual to others? Absolutely not. The Holy Spirit gives gifts for one purpose, and that is to build up the church. To build up, and that's the people, right? To build up your brothers and sisters in Christ, to edify the church, not yourself. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, we could choose many passages for this point, but this one's short. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. His mission is always to glorify the Son and to point us to Him. And these gifts are designed, service, teaching, preaching, all those things are designed for one purpose, to build us up so that we walk as he walked, not to build us up so that we walk in pride. All right, how about another one? How about the Bible? How about the Bible? To the unbeliever, the Bible is a a book, a thick book with old language. It's boring, it's complicated, and full of myths that we could never believe. That's what you'll read all over things today. To the believer, the Bible is invigorating. It is the very word of God spoken to his people with clarity to our hearts so that we can understand it or work to understand it. We still recognize that the Holy Spirit has been at work in Christians for 2,000 years and we stand on the shoulders of giants and we continue to contribute to that work today. But the Holy Spirit is at active work. In the Bible, God's Word. We talked already about how the Holy Spirit carried men along as they wrote, right? We read in 2 Timothy that all scriptures God breathed. That's the Spirit's work. But the Spirit's second work is to enliven, to illuminate the text so that we can actually understand it and apply it to our lives. These are spiritual things. These are God's Word spoken to us. Let's read 1 Corinthians 2. 10 through 14. We're not going to dive into this, but this is the work of the Spirit and illumination of Scripture. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. How do you understand? Not again, because you happen to be smarter. There's a lot of smart atheists. You understand because of the work of the spirit. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. You know that to be true if you've ever done any evangelism. These things that seem so beautiful, wonderful, obvious to you, spoken to the natural person, and they look at you like you have ten heads or they're mean to you. They don't want anything to do with it. 
It is a work of God in the heart. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the work of the Spirit that you pray for in the lives and hearts of the lost, that they will come to see truth. There is, of course, shifting gears, the fruit of the Spirit. You should see this increasing in your life. You'll, again, never reach perfection. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's so much more. In history, what do you have? You have the miraculous or the sign gifts that you read about over and over again that were given to the apostles uh, to validate as they went out and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ that in fact these were the very words of God spoken. We have additional gifts uh, given. We can look at either 1 Corinthians or Romans and see how the Holy Spirit equips believers, how he gifts the church to edify us to do the work of ministry. The Holy Spirit is active in our prayer. We talked about this last week, so I won't dwell on that, but He is active in our prayer life. He provides guidance to believers. You saw one reference to that in the psalm that we opened with this morning. All of these things are worthy of a sermon and teaching on their own. There's the entire work of sanctification. But let me come back and close with what John actually was getting at. What John actually was getting at. I lost two before the close, so they're not going to hear what John was getting at, unfortunately. He was getting at something, I swear. Here's what John was getting at. He wrote this, And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Uh, So what he's getting at here is the unregenerate person, the one who's not saved, will not understand spiritual things, will not understand God, and they won't understand you. They won't understand anyone who holds fast to biblical truth, who lives their lives in accordance with God, who chooses to show up on a Sunday morning and worship God instead of going to an event, a dance, a sporting event, hunting, whatever it is that uh, distracts you from worshiping the Almighty God. But Christians, true believers, those who follow Christ, those who are His disciples, they're different. They are different. They are filled with the Spirit of God. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're convicted of sin. And we repent. And we seek to please God. And we do things that the natural person would not do. This happens in everyday life, not just on Sunday mornings. We choose not to go to certain places. We choose not to listen to certain music. We choose not to watch certain things. We choose to instruct our children on the importance of God over all things. We miss opportunities that the unbelieving world gets. And we do that because we're told to share in the sufferings of Christ if we are his followers. And sometimes we ignore those. And we think, well, we can keep a foot in both camps, or we can make sure and do both. It doesn't make sense to the natural person. Nobody can understand why you're here this morning. They don't know why you would give up your time to do this. Only those filled with the Holy Spirit know and understand why you do these things. This is what John is pointing to. You see it in your life. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But you see evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. When you have those doubts, when you wonder... When you have those moments, those dark times in life, 
where you seem like you have slipped and fallen away. What John is telling you is you come back into the presence of God in prayer and in repentance. And you need evidence for how it is you know that you're saved. Then look at your life. Look at the evidence of the Holy Spirit who has been given to you and works in you. Ask yourself, why do you care that you follow or that, that you follow Christ's commands, but that you sinned? Why are you there repenting? Do you live to please God? Do you love sacrificially your neighbors, the people in the church especially, when it doesn't make any sense to anyone else? Why do you do the things you do? How would the unbelieving world see you? How do they see in you someone who stands set apart, someone who stands as an ambassador for Christ, right? Representing his very thoughts, words, and actions in your thoughts, words, and actions towards others. Do they see that in you? Do they see your willingness to do that even when it means foregoing something that the whole crowd wants you to do? Do they see that evidence in you when you know that you're going to be shunned? You're going to be silenced? There are going to be those who try to embarrass you? Do you care? Do you care what man thinks or will you stand one day in front of a holy God and be honored and hear that that phrase we all want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Uh, Just ask yourself if Jesus is the center of your affections. Is he central to what motivates you in all of life? And is that because of what God has done for you? Or is that because of something that you think you contribute? All of these things and more, John is saying, should give you comfort. It should provide evidence to you that the Holy Spirit is active and working in your life. And as such, you abide in Christ, the one to whom you have placed all of your faith and all of your trust and submitted all of your will because he is your Lord and Master and he did the work for you that you couldn't do. We have the most amazing gift. It's already been given. It's already been poured out. This gift and the very outworking of the union between God and us. And the gift is not a that. The gift is a who. And the who is the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh how our minds will never fully wrestle and grapple your divine nature, that you are three in one. But how we love the Son, Jesus Christ, and we know that that love is in fact a work of the Holy Spirit. And even knowing that, even reading your word explaining that, it is a truth that is beyond our ability to comprehend. God, we just pray that you will continue to help us grow, help us learn who you are, your glory, your majesty, your wonder. Father, let us never forget what you have done for us. Let us never forget the work of the Son done on our behalf, the work of the Spirit done in our heart, and your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that we're able to approach you through our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Please continue to work in each one of our lives to sharpen us for your kingdom. 
to take away our fears, to give us boldness in this world to speak truth, to show by our love that in fact we serve the one who loved even to the cross. Father, as we go out this week, let us not forget about you for another six and a half days, but instead let us continually have the reminder burning in our hearts that we serve a holy God, a God that created, a God that sustains, and a God that gives us every breath of life. Lord, we thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. We pray that you will protect and keep your people strong. In Jesus' name, amen.